Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. Good morning to you. I'm sure throughout this season you have been listening on repeat to every single Christmas playlist. As Pastor Spence mentioned in the, in the sermon that opened the series, we need as much hopeful music as possible, and so I know we've had it on repeat. There's a constant thread as you listen to this music about the coming of Jesus, and it's a thread of light, and a thread of joy, a thread of refreshment, whether it's joy to the world or angels we have heard on high or hark the herald angels sing, it's all refreshing, it's light, it's joyful, except one song. And if you have any kind of standard Christmas playlist with the classics on it, you're going to notice a change of tune. A change of tune, it's a song that seems to almost pull the shade on our Christmas joy for a minute. And you know it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. We resonate deeply with this song. We don't hit skip on that song for a reason. It's not just a Debbie Downer that we want to push away. We listen to it and we meditate on it because it resonates with our soul, this reality that Christ has come And Christ has brought the fulfillment of promises, and yet there's so much about the reality of our daily life that makes us want him to come again. It hits that chord in our heart, right? We need that song. And yet there's also another line in that song that gives us so much hope. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Could there be a better prayer at the end of 2020? Come thou dayspring, old word for sunrise, and cheer our spirits by thine coming advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night. The gloomy clouds of anxiety that keep us trapped, even though we read that there's freedom in Christ. The gloomy clouds of habitual sin, though we read that Christ has come to set us free from sin. The gloomy clouds that still seem to hang over, even over the best days that we have here on earth, the most joyful seasons we have, we have a little bit of a gloomy cloud. It resonates with us. And then death's dark shadows. When we are in a season where you just, all you have to do is go to the web, the newspaper website. And on the top of the website, there is a literal counter of how many people are dying from a pandemic. Every single time you log on, death has been put like a banner, like a banner over our lives in this season. And yet, 
And yet there is hope within even this line. Thou day spring, come and cheer. Come and cheer. You see, believers, the banner, the banner over this season is not COVID. We think we're going to look back on this and, and think primarily of COVID, but for us who are in Christ, the banner over our lives, the year last year, the year that's ahead, and this year is not COVID. The banner over our lives is the tender mercy of God revealed and risen in the coming of Christ and his promised coming to us again. In fact, this line, thou day spring come and cheer, is directly from the passage that we're going to dive into right now. It's from Luke chapter 1. We've been reading through the narrative of Jesus' birth. And in here, we're going to be put right into the place of Zechariah, who's in a place quite like ours. He has the promise of God, right? But he's in a place of waiting. He's in a place of waiting. And he looks to the coming day spring of Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through this passage. I'm going to walk through this passage. And what I want to, to show us this morning, I want to show you three rays of tender mercy. If Christ is the sunshine that's risen out of the earth and is coming, then I want to show you from this passage three rays that are shooting out from the coming of Christ upon our souls. And so if you are in Christ, I'm going to go ahead and give you the application point, even before we get into the verse. I want you to bask. I want you to bask in the tender mercies of God. We are all wanting good news through this season. I want you to just sit, sit and receive, bask in the tender mercies of God. When I, uh, when I take my pale self in the summer, out into the burning sun for the very first time and expose myself to the sun, I expect to be changed. I'm going to get a nasty farmer's tan some way or another. I don't need to even think about it or do anything. Just by exposing myself to the burning summer heat, I'm going to be changed. So I don't need to give you for this sermon, I don't need to give you application points. I need you to bask. And I expect as we bask in the tender mercies of God and the coming of Christ, you will be changed. Your heart will be warmed. You'll, felt, you'll feel hugged by your Father. I know that might seem like a weird prayer to come in, but if that seems weird to you, I hope it doesn't by the end of this sermon. I want you to feel hugged, wrapped by the tender mercies of Christ, the sunrise of Jesus. Let's go ahead and, and dive in. Beginning in verse 57. Luke chapter 1, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now, just a little bit of context. We've already walked through this in the series, but Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. Zechariah is serving as a priest before God, and God promises them, even in their old age, and though they were barren, that they would bear a son, John, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'd go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, Zechariah hears that and says, how shall I know this? And even in that one little hint of doubt, the Lord brings him through a season of discipline, both taking away his speech and his hearing. We're going to find that in this passage. And out of this season of discipline, the angel told Zechariah that until that day, you will undergo the discipline. So here, Verse 57, we're picking up on that narrative, and we are at the day that John is being born. Let's continue. 
Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Zechariah was in such a poor state of health that they just thought they were going to name him for him. And they thought they were going to name him Zechariah, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. This is the child that the angel promised. And they made signs to his father, because he could not hear, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. I always thought that this was just a humorous example of Zechariah agreeing with the wife. Like, that is a wise man. Yes, what she said. She named him. I'm on board. Let's go. But in fact, it's actually, this is a step of faith and obedience for Zechariah, even in his discipline. Even when he can't speak or hear because of the good discipline of the Lord, he's saying, yes, the Lord promised this. He came through. He is righteous. He is just. He is faithful. He came through on his promise. And look, and they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, here's what's something I want you to notice here. Zechariah has not spoken or heard a thing for at least nine months, Right? The vision came before Elizabeth was pregnant. He hasn't, he's been undergoing a really difficult, a really sorrowful, a O come, O come, Emmanuel season. And yet, as soon as he's healed, as soon as he's healed, you don't see him saying, God, what was up with that? What was up with that? Why why did you bring me through that? How could you have done that to me? But instead, as soon as he's able to speak the very first words, He blessed God. He blessed God. And because of their humble response to the Lord in waiting on God, it says in verse 58 that the neighbors and relatives around Elizabeth and Zechariah had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. A lifetime of barrenness. And then the Lord gives a child. And all of this, when Zechariah is mute and can't speak and hear, and yet what is all of this wrapped up in the mercy of God. The mercy of God. See, what we're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit, but here's a key thought. When we are turned from the Lord in pride, we can't gaze at the tender mercies of God in the horizon. When we're turned from him and believe that we are entitled to his blessing, we cannot see all of his works, the good and the bad, wrapped in the envelope of mercy. But when we turn in humility, and like Zechariah and Elizabeth say, that we are sinners undeserving of the blessing of God, then we're able to put all things, even our pain, in the loving mercy of God. And because of that, they saw it was bigger than them. Their neighbors, their relatives, they heard the way that they were talking about the Lord. And they knew that God had shown mercy. That God was merciful. Moving on to verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Okay, here's what I want you to see here. Zechariah was a man who for a long season, a long season of time, could not hear and could not speak to people. And then like that, 
almost out of nowhere by the mercy of God, he goes from not being able to use human words to being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking the very words of God. Now here, what we're seeing is God is showing a little picture in Zechariah of what he's done on a big picture through his people Israel. See, in Amos 8.11, it says that God was going to send, God was going to send over his people a famine, not of bread for hunger or of water for thirst, but he was going to send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord because they had worshipped their idols. Psalm 115 said that they had become mute like their idols and they had become deaf like their idols. They had served false gods and in serving false gods, they had become like them. And so they underwent a period of not being able to hear the voice of the Lord or speak the word of the Lord. And then out of nowhere, like a dark sky and a sunrise bursting up, God sends a word from the Lord. He sends a prophetic pronouncement. And he does it through Zechariah, but this is showing what's about to happen for Israel. Out of a a long period of waiting, a long period of being mute and deaf, not able to hear or speak the words of the Lord, God sends John, who's going to come as the last prophet and the greatest of them all to proclaim the coming of the Lord. Let's continue. What does Zechariah say? But truly, what does the Holy Spirit say through Zechariah? Even as you're reading this, think how profound this is. The Holy Spirit of God, who is God himself, the third person, proclaiming and announcing about the second person of God coming in the flesh. Verse 68, blessed, blessed, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Something to see here, Zechariah immediately, even before the coming of Christ, even before Mary has Jesus and births Jesus, he says that the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. God has come down, Emmanuel even before Jesus is born. Then he says he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This image of a horn is like a a strong wild ox's horn. And it was a symbol of war that the horn of salvation was going to be God's mighty hand that would deliver his people. Now, something that's interesting here in Psalm 18, verse 2, David attributes the horn of salvation to God himself. He says, the Lord is the the horn of my salvation. And every single time after Hannah in uh, 1 Samuel initially brings up the image of a horn, every single time after that, a horn of salvation is attributed with Yahweh, the Lord himself. So two times in this first two verses of his prophecy, Zechariah is acknowledging that God has already come, that Jesus has already been brought to life in Mary's womb. And how can this be? It's through the Holy Spirit. What Jesus said to Matthew, uh, in Matthew 16, flesh and blood cannot reveal this, but only the heavenly father through the spirit can reveal that this Christ is not just a man, not just a good teacher, not just something to celebrate in December, but the very Lord of life. Verse 70, as he, David, I'm sorry, as he, God, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, including David, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy, there it is again, promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. 
See, God called a man named Abraham. In, in Genesis 12, he says, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. He sets his name on Abram. And this comes right after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where God looks at humanity trying to ascend up to God, and he puts them down. But instead, uh, Abram, coming out of nowhere, just from Ur of Chaldeans, wherever that is, in Genesis 12, he calls him and he says, I'm going to lift you up. And I'm going to make a name. This is blessing. This is the blessing that God has set upon all his people who follow after Abraham, not just of the flesh, but in faith. He is not against us. He does not set his face against us to put us down. He sets his face upon us to bless us and raise us up with Christ. This is what he's speaking of. But right after that, God's people enter that land that he was talking about. And David ascends to the throne, this holy king. He's God's promising his people, peace. And out of a period of chaos where they were surrounded by their enemies on every side, in 2 Samuel 11, the Lord promises to David, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a son after you, and he will reign over a kingdom without end. Without end. And I will give you, this is what he says, I will give you rest from your enemies. Now, in the moment, it looked like in every single way, God was talking about the surrounding enemies, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites. And David was putting all those enemies to death, and yet there was another enemy that was still at hand. There was an even greater enemy that was still at hand that disturbed the peace of Israel. It was David's inner sin. David's sinful heart in his committing of adultery with Bathsheba ended up splitting the kingdom of two into and Israel saw that there was a greater enemy that was opposing their peace. It was a greater enemy that was opposing their peace. So look what God, look what God prophesies through Zechariah in verse 50, 75. We might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Not just serve him without fear from our surrounding enemies, but serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness. Here's what's being promised. It's the promise of Jeremiah 31 that came later, that God was going to put to death all of God's enemies, including their sin. He was not going to give them a covenant, not like the old covenant that he gave to their fathers. He was going to give them a new heart. He was going to write his law on their heart, and in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. He's going to make a way for them not just to be protected from their enemies, but to be healed of their sin. This is the new covenant that he's promised. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is what God is doing. This is how he's going to heal them and make them righteous. He's going to forgive their sins. Look at this. Why would God do this? Why would God bless Zechariah even after he doubted him? Why would God give Israel a savior even after they turned their hearts away from them? It says in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of our God. 
whereby the sunrise, KJV says day spring, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Can you imagine how Israel would have been feeling at this point? Centuries of silence, centuries of waiting, centuries of setting their hope on redemption with no answer. And in that silence, can you imagine they were probably thinking that God couldn't have cared less, that he was unmoved, that he was cold, that he was distant. And yet here's the truth. Is God himself speaking about the heart of God. He says, I was never unmoved. From the beginning, my heart, tender mercy, literally means bowels of mercy. His inner self, gut-wrenching compassion for his people who were about to crucify him. He was moved. And from the beginning, he was moving to the fullness of time when he would send the blessed son to redeem his people. Tender mercy. Tender mercy, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Jesus Christ visiting us from on high, but being the sunrise who would come into the earth to display the tender mercy of God. There's only one real place where Jesus doesn't just talk about what he's going to do on the cross, but he gives us a direct look into his heart. There's a great book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't read it, pick it up. It talks about this. There's one spot where Jesus gives us a look into his heart. It's Matthew 11, and he says, I am gentle, and I am lowly in heart. Do you think about Jesus in that way? That in the revelation of Christ, God has displayed his tender mercy to you. You see, just like Israel, you could be thinking through this season of anxiety and depression and separation and loneliness and fear of death that God is unmoved. But what this scripture is saying is that in the coming revelation of Christ, we know and we're certain that God is moved, moved from the depths of his being, his love set upon you like a sunrise bursting through the sky that cannot be shaded. It's set upon you. And so, son, daughter of God, I want you to bask. I want to walk through three rays, three rays of tender mercy, three rays of tender mercy to sit in. The first, in the darkness of our fear, God shines freedom. In the darkness of your fear, God shines freedom. See, from the very beginning, When Satan sowed a lie to Adam and Eve and they chose to sin and turn away from God, God's people have been in captivity, both to sin and to the evil one, an enemy of God and his people called Satan. And ever since that day, in Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I was afraid and so I hid from you. And that was the first time that fear came in when Satan sowed a word and then death came into the world Then fear came in the world. And ever since then, we have been afraid. We've been captive to what we know is going to be the punishment of our sin, which is death. We've been captive to what we know inside that we're powerless against the schemes of the enemy and his taunts against us. And what we see here when he says that he delivers us from the hand of our enemies, the hand of all who hate us, 
This is what Jesus has done. Jesus has come, and where we obeyed Satan, Jesus did not bow down to worship him and instead obeyed God. And on the cross, Jesus takes the worst possible wrath and lies and sin that Satan could throw on him. And he bears the full weight of all of our sins once and for all. This is where Satan thought that he had the upper hand. This right here is where Satan thought he had the upper hand. But on the third day, what we see, the sun burst out of the sky. Jesus rose from the grave and he defeated the power of Satan. He defeated the power of Satan and he defeated death. You see, our worst enemies are not the things that surround us. It's not the circumstances that are pressing on us. Our worst enemies are the sin within us and our enemy attacking us. And this, this, Jesus has defeated once for all. In fact, listen to this, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, it says, Since likewise the children share in flesh and blood, he has partaken of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, so that he could deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery, so that he could deliver all those who through fear of death we're subjected to lifelong slavery. If death is our end, we're in bondage to it all of our days. But if there's a resurrection, we're set free from the beginning. We're set free from the beginning. I'm not going to, what I'm about to say, I want you to know, I'm not talking about COVID regulations, wearing masks, taking off masks, or gathering or whatever. There is good precaution and even a good valuing of life of obeying the government and staying six feet apart and wearing a mask and all that. So hear this in the right heart. There's a lot of wisdom and good from the Lord in that. But I want to ask you if you have been in bondage to the fear of death in this season. Have you been in bondage to the fear of death? Because what we see here is that in the darkness of our fear, God shines freedom in Christ to deliver us. And now I don't say this trivially, but I say it believing that what Jesus has done is real, that there's really a resurrection. The worst of our possible fears is nothing to fear at all. Jesus has gone before us and suffered the worst possible of our fears, and he's come out the other side and said there is a sure hope on the other end, a sure hope of resurrection. We can, of all the world, we have the reason to be free. To practice caution and wisdom, but to be free as children of the living God with the promise of the resurrection. In the darkness of our fear, fear of the worst possible things, God has shown freedom. This is the second ray of God's mercy. In the darkness of your shame, in the darkness of your shame, God shines forgiveness. God shines forgiveness. What he does is so much better than just purchase us an eternity without death. He purchased us an eternity with him. What we need more than anything is not our circumstances to be better or our world to get back to normal. What we need is the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us. We need to be with him and yet because of our sin, we cannot. We can't. And that's why Jesus took the cross for us so that we might be forgiven the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham became a son of wrath 
that we might be brought into all of his covenant promises. God forgives us. Now, we hear this so many times in the church that it can become numb to our hearts, right? If this is part of the sunshine of God's favor, it can feel like the cold wind of apathy is blowing between us and the sun and we can't feel it on our skin. God's forgiveness. It's a core component to Christianity. We know it. God forgives us. God forgives us. But I think part of what makes us not feel it is that we have a misunderstanding of forgiveness. You see, if God, in saving us at first, shines his light upon us and says, you are forgiven, you're mine, I love you forever, what we feel, what so many of us feel is that, well, as soon as we sin and as soon as we stray, the sun goes back down below the horizon. God doesn't shine on us anymore until we get ourselves back and we work ourselves back into praying enough and attending church enough and reading the Bible enough. And then according to our obedience, we lift the sun above the horizon back into the blessing of God. But can you comprehend this? Can you comprehend this? That the son of God's tender mercy, his love for you, his compassion for you, his permanent sight to look on you, to choose to look on you from a frame of bowel, gut-wrenching compassion as a child of God is set once and forever by the righteousness of Christ. That what holds the sun of God's mercy above the horizon is not our ongoing obedience, but the perfect record of Christ that stands forever. And so when you sin, God shines. When you obey, God shines. When you run away, God shines and it reaches you into the deepest corners of hell. He shines upon you. And you can't run away from his sunshine. Because of the blood of Christ, because of his righteousness. Because on Calvary, Jesus took on sin to the point where the darkness fell over the sky. And the mercy and the blessing of God stood away from him. God turned his face away from Jesus so that his face would shine upon us and bless us and keep us in Christ. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no transgressions. Literally, Psalm 32, a better translation, happy. Happy is those, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven forever, whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Happy, joyful, tender. The world could be falling apart. And yet God shines upon us in our forgiveness. And lastly, the darkness. The last ray. In the darkness of your emptiness, God shines the filling of the Spirit. In the darkness of your emptiness, God shines the filling of the Spirit. Underneath this narrative, what we see is a constant thread running throughout the book of Luke and onto the second volume that Luke wrote, the book of Acts. And in his telling of the coming of Christ, Luke, knowing already about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, can hardly contain himself from alluding to it time and time again in the story of Christ. It was Elizabeth who was filled with the Spirit, who was able to discern that Jesus was the Son of God. It was Mary who was covered with the Spirit in order to conceive of the Son of God. And it was Zechariah here who prophesied by the Spirit about the coming of God. And it was John who was said that he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be the forerunner of God. The Spirit of God is bursting within this narrative. And what God is telling us 
here in this narrative is that we have good news of great joy. Good news of great joy that the angels were singing about. Not just that a baby would come and live 2,000 years ago and die and ascend to heaven where we would never hear from or see him or feel him again. That's some of our gospels. Jesus did live, and we know he resurrected, but he's in heaven. Someday we'll see him, but until then, we're distant. That's not it. We have good news of great joy, not just Emmanuel, God with us, but Emmanuel, God in us. Through faith in Christ, God fills us with his very spirit, who isn't just like an energy force that he sends from afar. It is himself. He comes to indwell his people, to assure them of the tender mercies of God. The heart of God, the bowel, gut-wrenching compassion fills our bowels. The gut-wrenching heart of God fills our heart so that we are reminded what Romans 5 says is that God has poured, what, his wrath? No. He's poured his judgment? No. He's poured his ongoing correction and condemnation of you? No, God has poured his love into our heart through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The tender mercies of God in us. God fills us out of our emptiness so that we don't just have to guess. We have assurance, the guarantee of eternal life, the guarantee that Christ will come again. Advent isn't just a gamble. Christ in us assures us, guarantees that he's coming again. And for many of you who are listening to me, this, this right here is the difference. This is why when December rolls around, you sing of a Christ who lay in a manger, but you cannot honestly say that Christ lives through you. You believe in him, but you don't know him. You believe that he raised from the dead, but you can't honestly look at your life and say, he raised you into newness of life. This is the missing link. You have to believe what Peter is going to promise in Luke's second volume. In Acts 2, he says, repent, repent, turn from your sinful ways. What does that mean? You see, when we put our hope, when we put our hope in things apart from God, it's like we're looking for the sunrise in the west. We're looking on the opposite side of the horizon and we're throwing up our hands and saying, God, why won't you come? Why won't you satisfy? Why won't you give me a happy and joyful life? We're looking for a sunrise in the West. We're trying to follow our own way and pull God into ours. Now to repent is to choose the way of Elizabeth and Zechariah and in humility to turn from our way, to look at Jesus and we will find him there. The sunrise of forgiveness, of freedom, of a filling of the Holy Spirit, where we don't have to guess, but we know, we know, we know in our hearts that God has tender mercy set on us forever. That can be yours. That can be yours today. That can be yours today. Now, if you're a son or daughter in Christ, what does this mean for us? It means that no matter how dark life feels. No matter how much it feels like you're in the shadow of the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death, it, you can know that God shines upon you. That you can fear no evil because God is with you. That you can have hope because God is coming again. See, I want to bring you into a little bit of a, a nerdy uh, 
observation about this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but I think you'll enjoy it. So bear with me. We're going to get into some Latin, and by the way, if you are a Latin scholar, I'm about to butcher the language that you love, because I don't know anything about it, but just follow with me. Follow with me here. This song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I told you that it goes all the way back to the early ninth century. It was in this monastic liturgy that was leading up to Advent. Now, Every single day, they would sing a different phrase about the coming of Christ, many of which inspired by this verse. And uh, if you throw it up on the screen there, I'll I'll show you. On on the first day, the very first day, uh, it would uh, would be, O Sapientia, yeah, you you see my, my, I'm I'm struggling here, but just bear with me. O Sapientia, which was O Wisdom. On the second day, they sing a new song, O Adonai, O Lord. And then on the third day, it would say, O Radix Jesse, which is O Root of Jesse. On the fourth day, it was O Clavis David, which meant O Key of David. And then on the, uh, the next day, it said O Oriens, which is O Day Spring. And then on the next day, it was O Rex Gentium, which meant, meant O King of the Nations. And then on the final day, I think it was December 23rd, it said O Emmanuel, God with us. And they would sing this every single time. Now, you, you're probably thinking, you better have a great point because you just butchered a lot of Latin. I, I do have a good point here, okay? So the, the monks who wrote this, they wrote it in mind that as each day went, it was actually forming an acronym that was backwards. So as you went through each day, if you looked at the Latin word, if you took the first letter of each of those days, it formed this Latin phrase that said, arrow, cross, arrow, cross. And this phrase meant, tomorrow I will come. Tomorrow I will come. So they waited and sang and they waited and sang and they waited and sang until they got into the end of Advent and they remembered that Jesus' promise was sure. Tomorrow I will come. This is why. This is why we can celebrate. Even when we're filled with the Spirit, even though we have freedom, life is hard. We groan until our Savior returns again. But this is why we can sing the chorus of the song. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice, daughter and son, even when you are tempted to fear. Rejoice, daughter and son, even when you're pulled back into anxiety because Jesus is gonna come and redeem not just your mind, but your body and soul. You will be completely healed. Rejoice, rejoice, even in the year of death. Because God's headline, his banner on the horizon is his tender mercy and redemption. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall, shall come to thee, O Israel. Let us pray. God, may we bask and behold. Send your rays into our heart. Let the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shine into our hearts to give us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And to those who are turned away, looking for a sunrise in the west of sin, oh, not by guilt, not by condemnation, not by shame, but by the tender mercies of God calling them, I pray they would turn Repent, believe, and be filled with the Emmanuel, God in them. We trust you. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.